Sophie went to get some water, and uh, I'm waiting here for her. Mm. Patiently. Patiently. But uh, it's kind of taken a while, and I'm ready to get going. Ready to record the show anytime Sophie comes back. Okay, I'm back. Oh, oh, there you are. Oh, okay, great. Were you talking to yourself the whole time? Hmm? No. Welcome to Tell Me Why I'm Wrong, <laughs> the internet's favorite show about why Sophie and I are wrong. Uh, and uh, this episode... Um, it's called, called National Pastimes. National Pastimes. Yeah, mm-hmm. so we're talking about baseball. We are not. No, we're not. We're talking about the other, our other national pastimes. Television. Politics and television. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should really plan these things out sometimes. No, we shouldn't. It's, it's part of our charm. Oh. Sophie, uh, so, so in, in this show, usually the way things work is that uh, one of us uh, has a little something to say about something that maybe the other person knows more about, and they say it, and then the other person sets them straight, and then uh, we do another segment that works in reverse. Mm-hmm. Sophie, who's who's going first on this one? I think I am, but I did want to okay. do a little follow up from our Please, last yeah. episode. So yeah. because you're going to correct yourself, uh, no. Oh, well, okay. no, I'm not. But but okay. I well, actually, I am a little bit. I'm going to correct both of us a little bit. So I just wanted to say that this weekend is the March for Science, and I, mm. I, I think as a couple of people have pointed out to me, have they? And were yep. they taking us to task for not being so, as supportive as we probably should have been? No, just like sort of like pointing at it and being like, oh, this is like what you were talking about. Oh, interesting. Well, I just want to say I'm actually, you know, supportive of the March for Science. I think it's sure. fine and great. Um, but interestingly no, I'll, enough. I'll say, that, I'll say this. I'm, I'm like, I'm, I, I think it's great because it's at least like science recognizing that they are like a political mm-hmm. force it's, it's that explicit. requires political action. Exactly. Agree. Yeah. Agree. Like, okay, let's go out there and do politics instead of just being quote unquote rational and, 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 and just to, inherently right. Be, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So no, I yeah. think it's great. Yeah, me too. Me too. So good job, everybody. Um, but since it is the March for Science this weekend, I've seen a lot of quotes from your favorite person. Oh, Neil deGrasse Tyson? Yeah. So one of the things that I saw come up was a quotation from him. The good thing about science is that it's true whether you believe it or not. And I I do think that just, like, makes my point, right, that science posits itself as the only version of truth. Um, And that, you know, whether you believe it or not, it's still true, so you're just wrong. Um, and, And, you know, I do think that not only is that sort of intellectually hegemonic i think it's also politically it's bad for dissent and i can tell you we could talk about that in a totally different episode about the french revolution um Ooh, oh that sounds awesome i would yeah. love to do an episode let's, about the french let's revolution. do that yeah so but then i was um, going to just point out oh sorry yeah no just, I was, uh i was just gonna say that that i think there's a lot of bad philosophy in that in that statement that the, the great thing about science is that it's true whether you believe it or not yeah, we could we could take that apart for yeah. sure. Um, I also wanted to point out, and I'm sure our listeners have noticed, that with the exception of Tyson, all the scientists that we named uh, last time, uh, without exception, so w- with the exception of him, all of them were white, and without mm. exception, mm-hmm. all were male. Uh, and we mm-hmm. know we know that identity and experience and positionality and cultural norms and all that stuff influence science scientists in the way they frame their research and even come to conclusions. And I can give you concrete examples. Um, and I think that's an important part that we miss, that actually life experience does influence this kind of thing. So that's that's another place where philosophy could be helpful. Yep, great point. And then I just want to say that, again, I think you're wrong because part of how we know what I just said has to do with critical theory. 
which you said has no, uh, had never made anybody's life better. And I would just say that I would insist that it has other than just the intellectual pleasure that it brings people. Queer theory, critical race theory, and feminist theory absolutely have demonstrably improved lives. Sure. Yeah. Boom. I, I stand corrected. That's all I want to say about that. Uh, okay. That's great. Uh, <laughs> but science! Tell me about science. how animals live. I want to know how they live under the ground and do their cute little things. Yeah. Oh, I love those shows. The burrowing animals. I mm-hmm. want to know them. Oh, well, so that, that's something that's actually something touches on something else that I, I meant to, as I was listening back to that episode, I was about to say something and then the conversation went someplace else. But was it about Jurassic Park? No, it was about you, you said something about uh, biologists studying like moths or something mm-hmm. and how that right, was micro versus macro. Yeah. And how that was even like a little bit too macro and, mm-hmm. and people didn't respect it or something. And, yeah. And, and I, I just just to point out that there's this there's this trend in science where um uh like social sciences get pushed toward biology mm-hmm. biology gets pushed toward chemistry chemistry gets pushed toward physics and mm-hmm. physics gets pushed toward like quantum mechanics right so it gets more and more abstract well uh yeah right yes more abstract but also just pushing everything and this is just because of this that like the big like a big way that science tries to understand something is by breaking it into its component parts mm-hmm. so there's always just this pressure to mm-hmm. uh, try to understand mm-hmm. things yeah. at a smaller level which um means i don't know i mean there's good and bad things about that but yeah for I think sure it's, i think it's interesting and if you're actually interested in actual animals yeah you know you're kind of sol yeah you are and you're not going to get any grant money and people are going to think you're not a real scientist but you know you can't understand the song of the nightingale by dissecting it who said that someone some romantic i think maybe novalis like or something okay. right like you can't yeah novalis said that artists understand uh nature and scientists only understand nature when she is sick and in her charnel house He's awesome. Also, he was a scientist. So I, I think that's enough about previous enough episodes. Enough about that. Let's, we let's go talk on. about. Well, let's talk about a future episode. So I would say probably it's not our next episode, but probably. Oh yeah, yeah. This is great, guys. Listen up. Five. Yeah. Uh, is going to be. Well, there's going to be homework for episode five. So if you want to be ready to go right when it comes out, we're giving you the heads up now so you can you know get on it and and we're and, doing uh, our homework right now. We've got homework to do too. Yeah. Uh, so Sophie has assigned to me to watch, uh, really like a, a lot of episodes <laughs> of, uh, of the show community. And I have assigned to her to watch just two. No, three. Well, I'm watching three. You're watching three, but that's I'm just cause you, that's just cause you like them. Yeah. That's uh, true. I assigned two films by Guillermo del Toro. I, I assigned Pan's Labyrinth, uh, which came out in 2009 and is that right? 2000? Yeah, 2009 in Pacific Rim, which came out in 2014. Mm-hmm. And I'm also watching Hellboy for good measure. But you've seen that like a gazillion times already. I think only two, but yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Um, and you've never seen Pan's Labyrinth? I've never or, seen it. Or uh, Pacific Rim? Correct. Right. Okay. And I, I, I'd seen like maybe like half an episode of Community. Mm-hmm. Um, so so if you want, you can watch, watch along with us. Yeah, watch a bunch of episodes of Community. Um, Maybe next next episode, maybe I'll I'll tell everyone which, or, or maybe I'll stick it in the show notes which episodes mm-hmm. I'm I'm watching so that mm-hmm. you can watch the same ones because there's a lot of them. There are, and if you want, I think for our viewers, if they just want to watch whatever ones they want to watch, sure. I, I think that's we don't have to be super strict about it, but we'll put it in the show notes in case yeah. you want to actually do. Maybe what you want to watch the same ones that I watch, yeah. and you should definitely watch the Guillermo del Toro movies if you hadn't, because they're they're wonderful anyway. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, okay, so that's the past and the future. Let's move on to the present. Yeah. So uh, our episode today is called National Pastimes, and we're talking about two national pastimes, uh, television watching and uh, following politics, thinking about politics, yeah. caring about politics, right? Mm-hmm. Doing politics. Mm, a little bit about doing politics. More yeah. more following and caring about. Yeah. Uh, wait, who did we say was going to go first? I think, I'm, I think I'm starting us off. Start us off. All right. So this is about the national past of, of politics. As an American, I'm invested and sometimes even passionately interested in our politics. But, and this is a big but, if we can separate it from the immediacy of current events that affect my actual personal life and the lives of those I care about, as a subject, I don't find it very alluring at all. I've said lots of times that I think American history, American politics, and especially American history, political history are boring, which is not very nice of me to say. And while it's, it's reductive and, and uh, I, I think probably not quite true. Um, I do think it tends to be not particularly nuanced or alive with ideas. Uh, Oftentimes we say American political history is under-theorized and so on. And this is especially contrasted with European politics, where you have a much wider and weirder and even more fanciful, but certainly more intellectualized set of possibilities. For example, and I'll just give you a few of my favorites. You have monarchists who believe in some kind of mystical role for kings, even in the 20th century. You have elite landowning conservatives who are in some ways excruciatingly anti-democratic, but in other ways astonishingly communitarian in their worldview. You have liberals interested in capitalism and democracy in interesting ways. You have a split among socialists about whether imperial adventures are a bad idea or a good idea. You have Catholic parties with an anti-clerical, semi-socialist left wing and deeply conservative and religious right wing. All kinds of weird fights about the franchise, the world's most bizarre voting systems, and so on. And this doesn't even get into conceptualizations of gender, or race, and citizenship. Uh, and since plainness and plain spokenness aren't valued in the way they are in the U.S., it's always always sort of baroque in how it's articulated and framed. And by contrast, although the issues are undeniably urgent, U.S. politics and U.S. political history just seem so dull and flat to me. But I know this stuff fascinates you, Amos, so tell me why I'm wrong. Oh, that's super interesting. Um, I, I, I think I've got an answer because I, I, th- I think I think there's a feature of the American political system that makes things look much flatter than they are, mm-hmm. and and you really you need to kind of dig in to find uh, all of the interesting disagreements. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, I I do think they're there, and and I'll I'll get to that in a second. But first, I just I want you to talk a little bit about what you mean when you say. American politics is under theorized. Oh, I, I don't mean American politics is under theorized. American could, political history. I, I could say that American. Well, general. I mean, generally, oftentimes people uh, historians say that um, American uh, American political history or American history is under theorized, and that means that it just hasn't absorbed some of those critical theoretical. Uh, interventions and apparatuses that other kinds of history have. And, and especially people talk about early America being under-theorized, which I think is really true, meaning uh, early American historians have basically rejected um, using any kind of theoretical framework, critical theoretical framework to, to help them uh, develop their ideas. Um, and that's not 100% true, but it's, but it's pretty true. And I think a lot of American political history gets you know, really, and and this is probably like rightly so, but really is um, focused on things like the American Revolution, the Constitutional Convention, and why we set up our politics the way that we did. And so then, you know, I think it gets flattened because it's sort of just like 
I keep using this phrase, just the facts, ma'am, but it's sort of just the facts, ma'am. Like this person said this and this person did this and it means this. Um, and there's not a lot of like kind of weird, I mean, I like the weird, interesting, nuanced, theoretical stuff as long, as long as it, you know, doesn't kind of like become completely unhinged from fact and reality Mm -hmm. data. Okay. So I may, I may have misunderstood. You're talking about, you're not really talking about American politics being flat, but about American political historiography. Well, that's definitely true, but I think they, I think to me, they, I mean, probably just cause I'm steeped, uh, you know, cause I, I approach this stuff the way that I do. Uh, it feels the whole, it, it bo- bo- both things feel flat to me. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, we've talked about this a lot about like sort of like we've made fun, despite the fact that we are both actually, I think we're both like pretty interested in something like the Civil War. Like, you know, those books that are so dumb and we like make fun of them a lot because they're really, really long and they don't like like, like the, the Shelby foot, like the the. The misty dawn opened over the field of battle. <laughs> General Beauregard addressed his men. Like like that's that kind of history. Sure, like like I call it sometimes like dad history, which is funny because my <laughs> this has nothing to do with my actual father, but like you oh, know, it's got like, a lot to do with mine. <laughs> okay, sure. So like like those big tomes that like you know certain kinds of dads have on their like bedside table, and they're like they're like always reading like that the that that biography of Napoleon or like or uh-huh. George Washington of FDR or something like that. Not all, I mean Napoleon obviously is not American, but you know what I'm trying to say. No. Like, oh, the guys who like want to read a lot about George Washington, like ten books about george washington or something yeah okay you know Um, those books that like leave race entirely out of the civil war yeah but but again like i don't know i mean yes there's like a a sort of there's there's like this sort of weird i don't even know what to call it sort of version of american history that does leave, yeah. That that that. Uh, it's like the Mount Rushmore version of history. Or something. Yeah, <laughs> it's sure. Just like big men's faces in stone. It's mm-hmm. Like, oh, and, boring. You know, I mean, I think, I think, uh, I I think like w- one of the grossest ways that that shows up in in the Civil War, which is you know sort of probably like the historical era that I'm most interested in in, in American history is is in like histories that treat the that treat the Civil War as like some great tragedy that befell our nation, like with the, the brother against brother right, it, narrative. Because it pitted white people against each other who otherwise uh-huh. would have been friends or something. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And it's just this thing that just happened. And what were you supposed to do? You know? Uh, right. Brother against brother is very sad. But at the end, you know, they reconciled and, and you sure. know, but you see this in, in Ken Burns, the civil war. It, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty good in a lot of ways, but it, you know, there's, there's this bit, talking about it must have been like the i forget it was it was some some anniversary of the war where they talk about veterans from both sides coming together and blah 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 and shaking hands and which probably was actually very like i mean given that that actually happened it's at gettysburg i think and it actually happens and and i'm sure it was like deeply emotional for the people who were really there totally but but of course yeah but but i mean they do the same thing in the great war right like they go to flanders or something Mm -hmm. But in, in like in the Civil War, the the or post Civil War, like the the basis for that reconciliation was the end of Reconstruction and Northern acquiescence right. to to Jim Crow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like that was the entire basis yeah. for the right. It's like okay, fine, we'll stop we'll stop trying to impose racial equality on the South. <laughs> yeah, 
you 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 win. You guys win. Like you you don't have your own country, but you can basically do what you want to black people here, uh, and and we're not going to get involved. Right. Uh, and dad was, history. Dad history is not really interested in that part of the story. Yeah. Right. But so so where I was going to go though with this idea of flattening is that that I I was going to relate it to the two party system. Sure, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, in the in the fact that we have two major political parties, and with uh, first past the post uh, electoral system, where you know, generally speaking, in almost all elections in America, whoever wins the most votes, there's like one round of voting. Whoever wins the most votes wins, and there's only one winner for each election. Like you, you put that that. Uh, single member districts and first past the post voting and you've got a recipe for a two party system and you know one of the things i mentioned uh, last season i forget which Wait, can you say was. why that is i mean i think i, I think yeah. we all accept this as like sort of like oh sure but like you want to well, say okay why? so yeah so if, if you have let's say a, a, sing, a congressional district where one person is going to win and mm-hmm. it's whoever gets the most votes then uh getting getting 10 Getting 20% of the vote is no better than getting 15% yeah. of the vote. Right. Correct. You know, yep. so these, these marginal yep. gains don't matter. The you only thing that matters is winning. per vote. Exactly. Right. Because yep. it's a single member district. So the only thing that matters is winning. So if you can't win on your own, you're better off just teaming up with whoever is closest to you and rallying behind them. And the other side is doing the same thing. And soon enough, you've got two sides you got two parties right and you've talked in the past on our on our on our show that about the idea that historically those two sides have not been particularly well ideologically sorted right right correct even though like there's plenty i mean maybe this is what you're kind of maybe this is what you're about to say but like even though there's plenty of issues that don't necessarily that like there is a diversity of issues and there are lots of opinions nevertheless the sorting happens into two buckets and that's what you get is that kind of what you mean right right so in in european politics where things don't generally work this way where they have either multi-member uh, constituencies. Mm-hmm. So let's say we'll have a district and the candidate, the, the top three candidates mm-hmm. or whatever are going to, are going to get, uh, go to, to go to, to parliament, mm-hmm. you know, that, that makes it easier for, uh, smaller parties to be successful yep. or, you know, proportional representation where, yep. you know, everyone in the country votes. And rather than having electoral districts based on geography, it's just based on, you know, the, the you get representation roughly proportional to right, the percentage head. of the vote that yep. you got in the country, something like that. Like th- those things allow, um, those things allow small parties to exist as separate entities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they have to work together, right? I mean, right, some, you're right. Then they, they have, form coalitions after right. the election to right. put together a government. And you know, one of the things I said last season was that that in European politics, you know, broadly speaking. Or in that sort of system, the coalition building happens after the election between parties. And in American politics, because of this first-past-the-post and single-member districts, it happens before the election and within parties, with yeah, a little I'll- bit happening between parties where where – you know, one party will try to peel off part of the other's coalition. Um, right, right. But- although although I do think, like, because some of these parties are really longstanding, they have a history of coalition, you know, of, mm-hmm. of kind of like oh, sure. coalitions together that I, I, I think can be in the mix in really interesting ways. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so so uh, I think maybe, I mean, I'm sort of hypothesizing here, but maybe one of the things that happens in European politics is that, that this 
the coalitions then are, are sort of more obvious and easier mm-hmm. to study and easier to mm-hmm. point out. And because parties, even with the coalitions, have their own identities, they maybe have a way there's sort of like a, a discourse there with yeah, parties and stuff. Yes, absolutely. Where, and there's issues where you can say, okay, we're going to work together on this issue, but this other issue we're never going to agree on. So we're not going to work together on that issue. Yeah. And in American politics, everything gets sort of lumped within, within these two parties. And it mm-hmm. takes a little bit of work to tease out what the factions are within the parties. Right. Um, but my point is just that there absolutely are factions. Sure. Um, and those factions have their own intellectual and political traditions and absolutely but they don't usually have an intellectual lie like they don't have they generally i mean i could be wrong about this but at least um they don't have something available to the general public that it's like here's all of our thoughts on the matter and we can like right like they don't put out um a uh uh, manifestos yeah yep right so this is dull right right unless you want to get into like Stuff like really out on the fringes, right. like, um, you know, I'm thinking of like the John Birch Society or, right. uh, you know, Ron Paul's newsletters that he was running in the 80s. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's plenty of manifestos out there on the fringes. But right. But that's not really the point. Stuff, yeah, that's not what we're talking I, about. I agree. I think that's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you, it takes a manifesto to be interesting to you? Well, I mean, I think at heart I'm kind of an... I mean, again, like you're a, man, you're a manifestoist. I'm an intellectual historian, so I want to know. I, that's how I think about these things. When I think about politics, I mean, certainly I think about. Okay, so for example, take the French Revolution. There are no political parties, but there are factions, and they mm-hmm. get names, and they sort of act like they act like political parties sure. in some ways. Um, even though everybody thinks that political parties are a terrible idea, uh, which is which is in itself a terrible idea. And we here we come back to our problem of dissent. But also there, so there's all this sort of stuff happening, say in the National Assembly or in the convention, and then there's also these kind of like what sometimes maybe gets called like a sort of demographic moments where where large numbers of people say like the the sans culottes or the the people of Paris or the Paris Commune, like they intervene in politics. And so that's not necessarily an intellectual, it's not about sort of like debates or something. But I think very often the way I think about politics has to do with ideas. And Mm, so when those ideas are not very, they're not on the face of them available, it's Uh sort of like, oh, who cares? And like, because there is this love affair with plain spokenness, it's just kind of boring. So I think the the issue is your attachment to politics is being about ideas yeah it That's is it absolutely it's not yeah. about it's not about ideas why not why uh it's about interests right and, okay, and, so, and ideas exist but man i think like you're gonna you're that. gonna get pretty far in politics by assuming that that uh ideas Ideas are the servants of interests. And- so I think that's partly – so that's that's going to be true in any any political moment, I think. I really – I mean, I'm not, I'm not that naive, I know. But, but I also think, like, for example, what interests me about European politics and European political history, let's say, or the, I, the intellectual side of that, is that in most European countries, the, the I, for, for a long time, even into the 19th and 20th century, there's – state forms are up for grabs. I mean, mm-hmm. people are trying to decide whether sure, they're going to have exciting. a monarchy, a constitutional monarchy. Some people want a socialist revolution. Some people want a Soviet – even within socialist – it's like, do we want a Soviet-style thing? Do we want some kind of social democracy? Do we want a welfare, welfare state? Um, so there – and, you know, obviously, like, there's these crazy things that happen when fascism becomes available as an option for people. But, I mean, these are – people are really trying to decide what what is our society going to look like. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, even with these, like, 
kind of kook among uh, voting systems, right? Like it's not until, uh, I think it's not until the Weimar Republic that Prussia abolishes its three-tiered voting system, which is like the craziest thing that there is. And so because I think, um, I mean, we have this idea anyway, even though it doesn't become reality until quite late in the United States, we have this idea that sort of like we're, we're a democracy and that means that, you know, people vote in a certain kind of way and there are certain kinds of, you know, we have this bicameral legislation and this is what the office of the president is. And so, yeah, it is about interest because because the form is already done. But I mean, is uh, I would argue that the arguing in uh, during moments of revolution or political change about what form the government is going to take, those aren't those aren't disinterested arguments about ideas. Those are arguments about who's going to have power. Well, it's always about who's going to have yeah. power. So but, there, I mean, there are arguments about like, interests whose interests are being served. Yeah, but those arguments are about ideas. I mean, right? I mean, sure, but unless, but again, the idea comes down to storming the barricades and shooting people in the head, which it sometimes does. Uh-huh. Like you're making those arguments with ideas in a way that I think in American in U.S. politics doesn't happen. Interesting. So, so there's there's like a layer of abstraction between, uh, like naked interest and, um. It always gets it always gets argued sort of through these kind of like uh, intellectual and moral lenses, which I guess happens huh. probably in the U.S. too. I just, I mean, I mean, it certainly does. So you yeah. should tell me why it's interesting instead of just getting me to tell you why it's boring. I mean, it's it's, it's a little <laughs> bit of a weird conversation. Like it's totally to weird. Argue with you about why why it's interesting. Like you know, if it doesn't grab you, it doesn't grab you, and you know, you've got enough on your plate to study. Yeah, but and when about. you're interested in something and you explain it. Right. Then it's sort of convincing. So so my interest in American history comes about through uh, wanting to understand contemporary politics, because Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to figure out what the F is going on in our country. (laughs) (laughs) Which is totally reasonable. And for me, you know, that, yeah, like that's, you know, for a long time, I I would have agreed with you that, yes, uh, American history is boring. I, I maybe would have extended that to the rest of history too, uh, but definitely American. That's another history. conversation I would love to have. Yeah, but but um, but I, I guess uh, and and I guess for me a lot of it was just sort of a visceral reaction to dad history, um, <laughs> and didn't actually have that much to do with knowing anything about American history because I didn't mm-hmm. know anything about it. You know, I took it in tenth mm-hmm. grade, and it was not good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I didn't I didn't really go back. Uh, but but then, you know, for me, it really started in probably 2008 when I, I started to become aware of certain strains in American political life that, that made me really nervous. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, for me, it was it it was the rallies that sarah palin was holding mm-hmm. during the last few months of which the now just seemed election. like quaint or something very quaint but <laughs> but in some ways like like they caught my attention and because of that i feel like i've been maybe like somewhat less surprised by things that have happened sure. since then than yeah. some other people have been yeah yeah uh, so these these were the rallies like like there was this famous moment in the 2008 election where where a woman at a McCain rally uh, started, she ha- she had the microphone and she started going on about Obama being a Muslim, uh, which was sort of like a crazy thing to say at the time. And McCain grabbed the mic from <laughs> We've her. We've come so far. I know. He, he grabbed the mic from her and he said, no, no ma'am, he's, he's an American and a good man or something like that. Um, 
And they're that's like, a very weird answer, right? Because you could be an American, a good man, and a Muslim. Totally, right? totally, totally. But but you know, at the at the very least, he wasn't indulging her the right, way right. the way Sarah Palin did in similar right. situations, and the way so many other politicians have since then. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Uh, and you know, and again, there were these Palin rallies where people started going on about uh, you know Obama not being a real American. The 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 whole thing where you know. Uh, Barack and Michelle kind of punched it in with each other. They and mm-hmm. uh, there's people going on about terrorist fist jabs. I don't know if you remember that phrase. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. So all I of, remember the the New Yorker cover of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yep. We'll put yep. it in the show notes, maybe. Um. So all of that stuff sort of brought up for me, like, whoa, there's like, there's something, there's like a dark side to American politics that I had been ignorant of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I knew that there were conservatives out there and I knew that there were racists out there. I didn't realize, uh, I didn't get it. Like I didn't, before that, mm-hmm. I didn't realize mm-hmm. like how, how much of conservatism has to do with racism mm-hmm. and like how, how much of a live part of American politics um this plays and and I wanted mm-hmm. to learn more about it and that you know that took me back to the civil war and and the the pre-war era and you know understanding sort of how um uh yeah where these forces came from and and how they've played out in american life before and mm-hmm. and so sort of tracing that um you know what you might call the confederate spirit in american politics Mm-hmm. Uh, became an interest of mine, but it was about mm-hmm. trying to understand what was going on mm-hmm. in America and in, in mm-hmm. the present day, um, which, you know, history isn't always the best way to do that, but it seemed relevant in this case. Oh, I think it's, I think it's really relevant. And I think, I mean, I think the only caution is like not reducing all of history to like a, I mean, this, you want to be careful of teleology, right. And sort of say like, okay, this historical moment is not just about, creating our future historical moment like there's stuff that doesn't fit and doesn't belong and you don't want to throw that all out just because it doesn't seem to inform your present moment but sure but yeah. yeah i think i think looking to the past to understand what's going on in in your present moment is is, is exactly right i mean that's a it's not necessarily what professional historians do but it's it's one of the uses of history that's really good right right and you know yeah. not being a professional historian i feel comfortable with yeah with totally <laughs> you're totally free to do that yeah yeah um, absolutely so yeah so again like that's that's how i got interested in american history mm-hmm. and just like trying to understand our country better and like what mm-hmm. what is this country you know we mm-hmm. there's so many myths about american yeah. identity that you know it turns out they have to do you know the the only way that they function is by erasing big chunks of things that actually happened and like when you you know you sure. kind of you can go back and you can learn about things that actually happened you're like oh wow this is like this this is a different country from the one uh-huh. that yeah that's exactly right in. that's exactly right and that's a really really good argument for the study of history i think and and since we've had people write in right and sort of say like well isn't the point of studying history like what the uh, he who doesn't understand history is doomed to repeat it or something like that what what you're saying is a much more practical and realistic Thank version you, of that, right? That. Yeah, no, yeah. That's a, I mean it's it's dumb, but it's dumb. I, I mean, yeah. it's also you know it has it, it has certain kinds of meaning, but uh, but yeah, I mean, trying to understand how the how we got to where we are is one of the great things that history can give us. So no, I don't I don't have any problem with that, but but I guess it seems like to me some of the things that you're describing are not just politics but culture. 
Yeah, sure. Yeah? Yeah, but I'm so, sort of mostly interested in how those are expressed in politics mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and how politics is informed by those things happening in culture. Yeah. You know and what I mean? mean? Like, yeah. like there's sort of like a sociological approach to this, like, mm-hmm. you know, again, what I, what I call the, the Confederate spirit. But I'm, I'm, I'm mostly interested in how it, how it has affected politics and the, the ways it's been uh, either um, – sort of uh what's the word captured and used by the uh larger political forces mm-hmm. you know like by political parties really mm-hmm. uh for their own ends and uh and how it's been suppressed mhm mhm do you want to say more about party politics i mean at one point you had a really interesting spiel and i don't remember when it was about ideological sorting and and party politics uh sh- yeah so wait what do you what do you want me to say I don't know. I'll say it. Whatever you want me to say, I'll say it. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more about, like, why political parties, U.S. political parties, why are they interesting? Why are they intriguing? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that they're particularly. So, I mean, like, I think one of the. I mean, because they're obviously, they they are under theorized, right? Like, clearly. Yeah, right. I I think if I know what that means there. I mean, yeah, right. So, so, so there's some interesting things about American political parties. You know, I think I talked about this. what. What episode were we talking about? I don't this know. Before? It was sort of off topic, but it was it really was. interesting. And then we had to like rein it back in. And yeah, one of our one of our last second half of last season. Yeah. Um. You know, uh, American political parties right now are pretty well ideologically sorted. So uh, the Democratic Party is the the liberal party, broadly speaking, and the Republican Party is the conservative party. But uh, that that didn't used to be the case uh prior to the uh, probably mid 60s uh they were not really very well sorted at all and there were lots of uh conservative democrats some of them very conservative and lots of liberal republicans and when you talk about this do you mean uh elected officials or do you mm-hmm. mean sort of just demographically no you mean elected both. officials okay both yeah 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 mm-hmm. yeah well yeah right and 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 if you go back even further you know as as the republicans like to point out the republican party is the party of of lincoln, lincoln. yeah and he was the first republican president and it, and it was started as <laughs> party uh, of inclusion yeah it was, well it was started as an abolitionist party uh it was a single issue party when it was created um and it was a northern party mm-hmm. yeah um yeah, right. So so it was a Northern Party, you know, so that meant it was, right, it was start on abolition, but also being a Northern Party, that meant that it was aligned with sort of Northern banking and financial interests, uh, which is sort of, I think, where it's, where it's kind of big business roots come from. And there just, I mean, there was this moment and not, I mean, I'm not a fan of the Jacksonian period. I mean, mm. for a lot of reasons, I but I don't know that much about it. Uh, well, I mean, some really bad things happened, but also it's like boring. Andrew Jackson, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know. I but, try, I tried to read, what was it called? It's, um, Sean Willent's book, yeah, The Birth yeah, of yeah. American Democracy. Is that's that what it's called? Hard, it's long and hard. It's um, long. I got about a third of the way so through. Many, it was quite boring. I mean, come on though. That's a great moment because it's the local focus, the no nothings, all these, like this mm-hmm. proliferation of like bizarre little parties. That's like, that's the only time that I get excited. I'm like, who are so, all these I mean, guys? You know, it is interesting. Cause that was, that was a moment where, you know, this stuff started in like you know, 1840s and 1850s where uh american the american political system really was breaking down so yeah you saw a proliferation of small well, you parties. also see like the you know universal uh white manhood suffrage become reality so there's mm-hmm. all these you know it's a, all these people yeah. doing their yeah, thing but the system the system was was breaking down so in and the there were issues coming up that were not they didn't have a home in the political parties 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was sort of a realignment mm-hmm. and, and, and an, an opportunity for coalitions with weird names. I yeah. love the names. I wish I could think of some more of them, but they're they're crazy and great. And and of course they don't mean anything. And the parties are probably like if I really looked into them, they would be like repugnant to me what they stand for. But still, they have great names. So but That's to, what I'm looking for. To go back to American political parties and, and this ideological sorting issue. It's it's not an accident that the parties ideologically sorted starting in the in the mid sixties. It's it's really a consequence of the um the Civil Rights Act. Mm-hmm. So, uh, President Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act in sixty-five. Is that? One? I forget. Some somewhere around there. And um, and you know the 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 story is when he signed it, he said, you know, the the Democrats have lost the South for a generation, mm-hmm. um, and he was wrong. They they, mm-hmm. they stayed strong in the South for several more years, but uh, after that, they lost it for a couple of generations. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point, a, a lot of the conservative Southern Democrats left the party and went to the Republican Party. And, and Richard Nixon uh, very explicitly welcomed them mm-hmm. and said, you know, basically like, yeah, Southern racists, like, like, we will make a home for you in the Republican Party. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and this will be our new our new coalition. Um, and that process took you know, I don't know, 30 years really to play out. Uh, it wasn't really until the uh, mid-90s that the last of these, like, conservative Southern Democrats um, either switched parties or just retired and went away. Mm-hmm. But, like, uh, I don't know, Zell Miller, he's he's one that's sticking out in my head. I think he's from Georgia who uh, switched parties in the 90s. And, and that was really sort of the end of it. And, and since then, the parties have been pretty well ideologically sorted mm. um, what about jim jeffords that was the thing same era yeah right? okay a little later okay. so I mean, jim he's jeffords not, he's he was, not southern no so he's a good example of a, of a liberalish northern republican though yeah yeah, 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 yeah. no so he he's he hung on until when was that 2000 was it he switched parties in 2000 i think it was 2001 maybe 2000 something, something like that i think it was after the 2000- I think it was after the 20, 2002 midterms, maybe. Okay, okay. So yeah. he was he was a, a Republican senator from Vermont, Vermont, and um, famously uh, left the Republican Party. I want to say it was about it was over the second round of Bush tax cuts. Was it? I do not remember. And I think, yeah, I think maybe but it included it major cuts to funding for special education, which yeah. was his signature issue. Mm-hmm. That was like his baby. He was mm-hmm. he he was a big reason why we have um, mandated uh, provision of special ed in mm-hmm. public schools nationwide. Mm-hmm. It got a lot to do with Jim Jeffords. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but he was he was pretty pretty liberal. Uh, yeah, right, absolutely. And I mean, Vermont in general is a good a good uh, study of this. It. it was a solidly Republican state for basically from the founding of the Republican Party until the eighties. Interesting. I had no idea it was so yep. late. It was it was it was considered the most Republican state in the country. Uh, really? Yeah. And I then, didn't know that. What about New Hampshire? I guess they're all libertarians. Much less so. Yeah. For your cheap 
Right. I mean, so, so New Hampshire and Vermont, they're, they're called the twin states because they, you know, one looks like the other upside down, but mm-hmm. politically they've always been very different. And, pol- and they, yeah, they are each other upside down kind of politically too now. At least that's how people think about it. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, stereotypically, right. stereotypically it's like the liberal though, hippies and the sort of like libertarian conservative, yeah. you know, I don't know. I don't have a noun for the New Hampshire people. Gra- granite faced, taciturn, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know. Yeah. So uh, I kind of feel like we should just we should stop there. And and that's that's some of why I think American politics is interesting and the Mm -hmm. the things about it that Mm -hmm. that fascinate me. Mm -hmm. You know, if that doesn't grab you, that that's okay. But it seems like you're at least interested in in sort of contemporary American politics. I absolutely am. I absolutely am because it's important. It's just yeah, I think I think you put your finger on it when you said, like, if it's not about ideas, it just it's not interesting to me intellectually. That doesn't mean that in terms of interests and in terms of ethics, I'm not sort of like, wait, this is really important. Some of these things are wrong. Some of these things are right. But um, but certainly like. Yeah, from a from a I want to spend my time studying this. It just doesn't get me. But maybe again, like that's back to our like weird hobby thing where I just have to be all in if I mm. want if I'm going to do anything. Yeah, maybe with it. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's move on to uh, one of our other favorite pastimes. Yeah. Uh, watching TV. Watching TV. So I'm I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about the end of the golden age of uh, television. Okay. Good. And I, I really want to hear what you have to say about this. Yeah. Me too. I can't wait till I know what I'm gonna say too. <laughs> Great. So for about ten years now, critics have been telling us that we're in the golden age of television, starting with The Sopranos in January of 1999. Continuing with The Wire in 2002, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, all the great shows on Netflix and now on Amazon. TV is no longer just sitcoms, Law & Order spinoffs, and talk shows. There's real (laughs) art being made, works that are actually important, not just entertaining. And if you are looking for entertainment, you've never had more and more varied options. Uh, But Sophie, we've talked a little bit uh, in person, and you've let me know that you think maybe this golden age of television is over. Mm. I don't know why you think that's true uh, <laughs> since we decided to save it for the show. Uh, but I do have some thoughts of my own about what's wrong with television today. And I put that I can't in wait ca- to hear that. I put that in caps. What's wrong with television today? Awesome. Uh, I should start by saying that uh, what I'm about to say may have uh, more to do with me than with television. Uh, and maybe this all goes back to what we've been saying about my hamster brain getting more and more hamsterish. <laughs> But I think a lot of TV today has been spoiled by serialization and binge watching. Mm. Shows expect you to sit through five hours before anything happens. <laughs> or, or they make all these episodes where nothing happens for 55 minutes and then something happens in the last five to try to get you to watch the next episode. A friend was recommending a show to me a few weeks ago and told me that season one wasn't great, but that partway through season two, it got really great. Well, that's like 28 hours of TV to watch before it gets good. <laughs> Uh, that seems like it's asking a lot of the audience. And more and more, I'd rather just watch a movie. And I can talk more about some of the things that I like about movies that TV largely doesn't get to do. But the big one right now is that movies need to know what they're doing and they need to get to the point. And more than with TV, the creators have the opportunity to craft them with rewrites and editing uh, to make sure that the whole thing works together. I'm sure there are shows out there that I would really enjoy that I haven't seen. But thinking about starting a new show just feels overwhelming. How long is it going to take before I care about anything that's happening? Is each episode actually going to tell a story? Or is it just going to be a 10 to 18 hour story that's chopped up into arbitrary chunks? Uh, 
Sophie, am I crazy here or is the whole damn world crazy? <laughs> I, just, I feel like everyone goes on and on about how great TV is this these days. And, and I just, uh, I just don't care. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to be a little bit on the same page, although we might have slightly different reasons for being. So I actually think that the, that, that maybe the golden age of television is over too. And, um, I, I oh, you want to say something? Sure. Else? I just, I just want to like, I, I think we should, at some point we should talk about sort of like why we had a golden age of television in the first place. Yeah. Cause I think that's a little bit of an interesting story and I think it's going to be a great test case for my, um, uh, hypothesis that all, quote unquote cultural change is technological change. Oh great. Okay. <laughs> 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 um so I have like a really, really personal, like totally, totally individualized reason for thinking the golden age of television is over. But I you know, we'll start there as a like a litmus and we'll sort of go. Because <clears throat> I think I've mentioned on the show before that I didn't watch really I didn't watch television for about ten years. Like I, I just didn't and it was not interesting to me and I didn't want to. Um, you know, I watched movies and I sometimes would watch like we would get like tapes from the library of old shows or something, but you know, really it was not it was not a focus of my life. And then suddenly somewhere around I think two thousand and four or maybe two thousand five or six, I started watching T V a lot and that went on for about 10 years. And what I realized, I think for me, the golden age of television started when, even though I don't, I didn't really like watching TV. It was not something that I wanted to do. I never thought like, oh, I'll turn on the TV. Um, suddenly there was more TV to watch than I could ever keep up with. Mm. I mean, if I watched a couple shows every night, I still wasn't watching all the things that I wanted to watch. And now having been totally had my brain retrained to want to watch TV, which I resent. Um, but still like now I have to search around and there's nothing that I want to watch or there's a couple things, but you know, not very much. And I do think you're probably right. Cause you're probably referring to like the movement of, uh, television onto the internet and particularly like now this sort of new trend of, um, shows that drop all at once. Uh, yeah, right. Right. So, yeah. I think, I think, well, I think, uh, first the creation of cable, I think like, yeah. a- allowed this more sort of small niche audience sort of TV and, uh, you know, like network TV needs to appeal to mass audiences and cable TV can appeal to, to a more niche audience. And, and then even more so with the movement to, to the Internet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think also like, I mean, for me, and I, I don't know why exactly this is, but there was a moment um, where all of for, <laughs> this is a funny way to define it. But like all of these really good um, theater actors were suddenly on television. And of course, like people who make their living in theater probably always like are hoping that they can get a gig that well they used to be on law and order sure but that's only one show and as you said it's and all of its spinoffs but but like i think people you know actors need to like make a living and not starve to death but um but i think like for really good actors like um you know when you think about christine baranski who's on the good wife obviously um julie white laura baranti and uh, marcia gay harden of all people i mean she like does plays with tony kushner all of a sudden yeah, she, like, oh, she had a recurring character on law and order she also had a, a she was like a main character on this show called trophy wife which was like not a great show honest to god but like actually a lot better than it should have been and if i'm marcia gay harden like i would want to be on that show i mean the writing was fun and the actors were really good i mean you get to do perform you get to perform with people that you want to work with and i think previously we had had this like very hierarchically stacked um like a stratification of what 
like was worth your time if you were a serious performer. And so like, you know, theater was at the top, except for that, like no one can make, very few people can make a living doing it. And so then movies and they sort out into sort of like art, art movie, art house movies and like, you know, blockbusters or something, but like, you know, you can sort of sort yourself into those. So, so, so it's the move from New York to Los Angeles for a lot of actors. And then like TV was for like, the crappy actors, you know? And for example, like that's not ever how it's worked in say um, the UK, right? Like Judy Dench was like on a sitcom, you know? Um, um, but for a long as time, as time goes by, I think so. Yeah. 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 So for a long time, I think that was, I mean, obviously a lot more goes into making great TV than just attracting great for performers, but I do helps, think though. like it really helps. Right. So like, but you... isn't, isn't the, the ability of TV shows to attract great actors, a result of, Great writing. Bas- well, a combination of <laughs> a combination of of great writing or or good writing, money, yeah. and and just this overall shift in the esteem that TV shows are well, held sure, in. Those things are all combined. Yeah, right? which is which is a result of 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 uh, people making these sort of niche. Right, prestige. Pre- prestige dramas. Yeah. But but so for me, you know, okay, so two things. Like one, just that like, um, you know, television does kind of get its start as like, I mean, it, it really is just an excuse for advertising uh, in like a like a very one-to-one kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I, I, I would say like for me, if we're going to define the golden age of television, I'm less interested in those, those prestige dramas. Although I watched some of them and, and I do think like some of them went on way too long. And so like the first couple seasons maybe were good. And then I lost interest or something, but um, cause it get too soapy. But I actually think that the golden age of television is totally about playful, light, smart half hour shows, or I guess they're 22 minutes, 28 minutes or whatever shows. Well, I mean, okay. Yeah. There's always going to be, you know, the, 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 the category or they're not always, there didn't used to be, but right. Like breaking bad, mad men in some ways, even the wire, um, which I think in some ways like did start me off like on my sort of watching TV journey a little bit. Um, was that in heroes, right? That and Heroes, yeah. Heroes was so uneven. Oh, man. But, but like, yeah, there's... And, and, and I think in, still in this category is, like, is now... Are now these internet shows, like, um, Orange is the New Black, uh, which I did watch a couple of seasons of and was really good. And then I didn't want to watch it anymore. But I Same think, thing happened to me. I think yeah. I watched, like, two episodes of season three, and I was like, eh. I, I think I watched maybe the... Yeah, I don't remember. But, but for me, like, I kind of... And I don't know. I'm going to just float this idea. I don't know what... Well, Listeners, you can tell me that I'm wrong. I kind of feel like for me, the golden age of television really took a hit when Parks and Rec went off the air. Oh, interesting. Which was not a show that I was like in love with when it started, but, and I did, like I was not binge watching it, but I was watching it on the internet after it had already, after much of it had already aired. And, um, but it's, I think for me, like the thing about TV is that it is serialized. It is, tends to be short um, or shorter than a movie anyway. But like, you know, what it's what the medium is really good for i think is like when that combination of silliness and intelligence and good performance and good writing but not taking itself too seriously comes together it's sort of perfect for that kind of comedy and i think when tv got way too invested in the like dark prestige drama i think that kind of killed the golden age that's my theory that i just made up right now but I mean, isn't, yeah. Okay. But and like, there's still a few, like I got to put in a plug for the good place. I think that is a terrific show. Everybody should go and watch it immediately. Okay. I watched, yeah, I watched the first couple episodes and then stopped. It gets even more, int- it just gets more interesting okay. and it's delightful. But, but yeah, like, like, 
I don't know. Breaking Bad is not delightful. There's nothing delightful about it. And I think like TV, TV more than other medium media of its kind, like more than movies, let's say, like can kind of be ch- charm and delight you. And, and that's kind of what I'm in it for. Yeah. So to, I mean, to beguile the evening, right? I'm 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 thinking about this old saw about uh about why. Jay Leno was more successful than David Letterman, I think. Whoa, was he? What do you mean by success? I, I don't know anything about that. Well, I think he always had better ratings. Is oh, okay. that true? I, I have know. no idea. But the, the, the idea was like if you're basically with a, a you know, Le, uh, Leno has a, uh, had a reputation for being like very anodyne and Ooh, good kind, word. kind of like, yeah, just like sort of like not very challenging sort of comedy. And, and Letterman was a little edgier and, mm. you know, willing to make people more uncomfortable. Uh, is this like the the fight that I'm hearing about between um, Seth Meyers and Jimmy Kimmel? Oh, I have no idea. Well, just their uh, handling of Trump. Are anyway, they beefing? Oh, oh yeah. Okay. No, they're not beefing. No, they're they're friends. Okay, but but you know the idea is like you know if you're inviting someone into your home every night, you maybe don't want someone that's going to be like making you uncomfortable. You want something comforting. And, sure. and maybe, maybe there's a relationship to this sort of the long formness and this mm. like wanting something to be delightful. Yeah. I mean, so I was going to say, it's really funny. Cause I, I, um, <laughs> when I first watched the, the British office, Ooh, not uh, when, delightful. no, well, and extreme, but actually like it is delightful, but like extremely uncomfortable all the time. And uh-huh. one friend of mine who I was watching it with, we would like finish an episode and he just looked at us and said like, well, time for our suicide break. Like it's just so uncomfortable. But, but as you get to know the characters, it does become delightful. Okay. I don't think I made it that far. Well, Martin Freeman is delightful. Yes, he no, he's there's he's just char- a no way around charming. it. He is, and he's so, a very good actor. Like he's yeah. he's great. I and that's the other thing. I guess I would just say is that like I really am interested. I mean, you know this. I'm interested in in acting and in theater and mm-hmm. and in acting technique. And you get to you can actually watch. It, it's 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 more satisfying to watch that develop over a sh- like a show, a television show, than just like go to the movies and be like, oh wow, Meryl Streep was really good in that one. Hmm. Because you can see... Like, great performance, give her an Oscar, whatever. <laughs> I have thoughts because about you can Meryl s- Streep. I can tell. That's... Wow. <laughs> I used to really be a huge fan, and now I'm less so. What What changed? Oh, she's... I just think... I mean, I don't think it's fair to say... I, I would... It's not fair to say she's getting lazy because I think she actually works extremely hard and is very serious about her preparation. But she's Meryl Streep. She can do whatever she wants. And I think she's just having fun with doing whatever she wants. But it's not like particular. She's just always she's always so lovable no matter what. I mean, I really did not like that Margaret Thatcher movie because she just made Margaret Thatcher so delightful because you're like, oh, wow, Meryl Streep is like being Margaret Thatcher. Woo. Like this gives me feelings that like either you're thinking like, I guess Margaret Thatcher wasn't so bad or you're thinking, wow. Wow, Meryl Streep is so wonderful. And to me, a movie about about Margaret Thatcher should not; those should not be the top two things you're feeling. That makes sense. Yeah. Um. So right. So there's there's for me there's a there's a a uh, you know the the great thing about TV when it works well is that you get to spend time with actors and characters. Yeah. And you can spend a lot of time with them. Yeah. And when that works well, it's it's great because yeah. you, you really get to see them grow and change over time and you feel like you know them and that's really Which can be a little dangerous probably it can be sure but but i guess my and again maybe this is just me but i, I just feel like um so many creators now are just uh 
assuming that we're in it for the long haul Mm -hmm. and that we're going to watch it and they don't actually have to make us work to care about anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That it's it's like, it's okay. We don't need to, we don't need to think about how we're going to make this character interesting or compelling to people because after 18 hours... (laughs) <laughs> you know they'll have like wormed their way into their brain and it's, right and you it's can just... you can start caring about people in like a uh like a doctor's waiting room after you've been there for five, exactly. five hours or right. something it's, it's, it's like a hostage situation <laughs> yeah well i think i mean and i'm, so, I'm just not i'm just not really i'm not willing I to hear do ya. that i hear you i hear you I, and... I want creators to like to work at making things compelling yeah. But I think one thing that's interesting is that previously, you know, there were these really grueling long seasons. I think it's really hard to make 22 episodes of anything kind of at sure. a fast pace be good, be really good. I mean, unless it's super, uh, like super episodic. Sure. And and I actually like shows that are like that. That Me are sort too. of like each one is a one off. I have to say, like, there's a special place in my heart for that. Um, I love and- Law and Order. I don't, but that's okay. Um, I, I don't know. Procedurals don't do it for me. But um, but I also think, like, um, it used to be that... So it's this weird thing where there's always been this question about whether you're going to give a show a t- any time to find itself and its audience. Mm-hmm. And right. I feel like what's a weird thing now is that, like, some shows get all the time in the world to find themselves and their audience, and they're bad. Um, and then others of them are really good but get no time. And I don't understand. I mean, some of that has to do with networks, I think, and yeah, I don't really sure. know enough about networks to know why that is. But some of it has to do with what you're talking about. And I think there was a sweet spot where, like, maybe, okay, here's another theory. Like, maybe the sweet spot was when television was still airing on TV, like on the air, airwaves, but you could also then go and find it on the internet. So it could find its audience, even if people didn't tune in at 8 p.m. on Thursday or whatever. Um, but it was still, it was still not just only living on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, I mean, I agree. I don't like the thing where like nothing happens in an episode except for maybe people being mean to each other and terrible. And then at the last minute, there's a cliffhanger. Like I have no interest in that whatsoever. Yeah, I like those little so episodic lazy. nuggets, you know. And I have to say another plug, like. I don't know if you're watching Grace and Frankie, but I no, really would. That? Oh, well, I mean, again, it's it's Lily Tomlin and oh, Jane okay. Fonda okay. and like a bunch of Tony winning actors that you haven't ever seen before. Yeah. Do, doing a, a, a fan. Oh, and Martin Sheen and oh, Sam Waterston's in it. Law and Order fan. Oh, yeah. Well, I like yeah. So Order. you should watch it. But what's great about at least the first season is that like it do, you do not want to watch the next one after after you've watched one. You're like, whoa, I, I, I need to think about that. But it is sort of light and delightful as well as being serious. I don't know. I would. Pl- I think it's really interesting as a show, but um, and well written and well performed and all that. But I like that where you're like, okay, I've had enough. Like that makes me. I don't need to watch like fifty more of these right now. Right. Yeah. Yep. So what? What are you watching? Anything that you think is really good? That is a, what you would recommend as a national pastime? Uh, not right now. No, I'm just I'm not really excited about any TV. Well, shows you right told now. me once that you thought that TV was just inherently a bad medium. Do you think that? No, I, I can't, <laughs> and I I can't. I don't remember saying that, and I can't imagine why I would have. <laughs> um, you really did. It was recently too. I mean, I I think I think I you know I may have said something about it being hashtag actually bad. That, no 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 this was before you said that okay doesn't matter okay but Why, but if you know if if i did say something like that and you're not just making this up to try to trap me i'm totally that, not making it up okay then I, I i was probably just getting at this point about about the way it gives creators uh um a way to 
like not put in the work of, of mm-hmm. actually crafting stories mm-hmm. uh, or um, in, in just, just relying on time to make you care about a character instead of writing. Do you think that's always been true or do you think no. it's more true because of the, the technological changes that you love I, to talk about? I think about? it's more true now because it, it, I mean, it used to be that it was very difficult to do any sort of serialized TV show because if someone didn't, like you could do it as a mini series, yeah. like Roots or something, mm-hmm. but it's, it was very difficult to do it as a, just as a TV show because, you know, if you could only watch the show when it was on and if you missed it, then you were screwed. So that doesn't work very well. Right. Unless you do like a cheesy, like last time on. Right. Which you can do, but yeah, right. You don't want to do that every single episode. Right. So unless the show is super popular and everyone's tuning in all the time, it's really hard to have a through line story. Now HBO was able to do it because they, they didn't have that many shows. So they could play the same episode of the Sopranos all week Mm. and and give people a chance. But it's still, isn't that still a pay service, right? Right. It's a paid service. Uh, which which is important, but you know, in in you know before the internet and everything, people could you know they you could you had all week to catch the last episode before the next. That's one right. Was That's on. interesting. Right, right, right. Um, and this is even before, like, say, DVR or something. Exactly, and then DVR was, was a total total game changer. Um, and I think that those those technological changes sort of uh, created the opportunity for uh, creating creating real serialized drama. I think in in that case, you're absolutely TV. right. Even though I might disagree with you about that as like a an explanatory framework for everything in the history of the world, I think in this case you're right. <laughs> okay, I'll take that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, I'm I'm sure I'm sure I'm selling stuff short here. Like I'm 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 sure there are wonderful shows out there. That there are, really are wonderful great. shows. And, just and maybe I would many. even find them compelling. And and I guess that's that's sort of why I started the whole thing by saying maybe this has more to do with me than with than with tv uh yeah but you know i guess but i guess I the other the thing same wanna... thing right yeah i said and... this is individualistic and let me just um, insert like some of this has got to be because there's too many shows right there's so many shows i think that's true that i mean it didn't used to be this way right there used right. to be like whatever like four cha- three channels and however many shows you could put on in a 12 hour period or whatever yep. it was. And now there's so many that everybody, it's like your newsfeed. Everything is sorted just for you. And you're like, well, for me, I feel like the golden age of television started with the wire and ended with parks and rec. But like, that's just what I happen to watch. And there's yep. just like, there's a billion shows. Anyway, you were going to say something interesting. And I cut you off. Well, it wasn't that interesting, but I was, I just wanted to touch on some of the other reasons I like movies better. Oh, I do not like movies, but go ahead. You don't like movies. <laughs> Do you want okay. me to tell you very quickly why I don't like movies? No, I'm just willing no, to you... let you leave that there and, and the audience can sort of gawk in amazement. I have a really disbelief. good reason. No, 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 no. You're not, you, no I'm not going to let you explain it. You're, uh... <sighs> well, I'll get to it when we do our homework assignment. Okay. Um, I mean, for me, it, it also has to do with things like cinematography and sure. production values. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Like the, the the older I get, the more interested I get in cinematography in mm-hmm. the way the way people use the camera to tell the story. And yeah. you know, that's a thing that happens in TV. Um but not as much as Correct. In yeah, movies, that's right. That's right. Because right. right. yeah. you know, generally in TV the director is not doesn't isn't that influential and that this it varies a lot by show but a lot of the times it's it's got the you know tv is a writer's and producer's medium and and the director is not that 
big a deal. Well, because you have a kind of rotating cast of directors. Yeah, right. Exactly. You got a di- and you also, got, or a team oh. of directors that sort of rotate. Yeah. But remember when all the HBO shows sort of looked the same, sort of aesthetically, mm-hmm. and then the HBO did HBO did the Angels in America miniseries, and oh, which I've never it, seen. Um, I mean, it's good. It's not. I think the play is the play is more delightful. Okay, <laughs> but but um. But it looks like like it's like you know you could take if you didn't know who the actors were you could take like a still from Six Feet Under which was sort of on at the same time and a still from Angels in America gotcha. and it would like look the same yeah. which is just I mean that and that's about branding I think maybe or or I mean it could also just be about like money and like this is yeah. they've got like systems and processes yeah. and people and partners that, yeah, that yeah, they yeah. That, you know that they work with and they can like order up another set from billy or, sure, you know what sure. i mean but and it's like, also like tonal right like hbo yeah, yeah. wanted to have a certain kind oh, of I tone see. and yep. i think it was actually pretty inappropriate for angels in a lot of ways but it's oh, still really good i mean it's mike nichols is the director and it's beautifully written oh, yeah, and okay. justin kirk is like i mean you just he's amazing and everyone is good in it um uh, Mary Louise Parker is in it. It's really great. I mean, Meryl Streep is in it and she's right. really great. But I like, heard she's it, a good actress. It feels like every other HBO show that was yeah. on at the same time, which is sort of tonally. I, I do think it was sort of about like, well, this is what HBO produces. It looks like this and it feels That's like this, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, people, people make the same complaint about the, uh, the Marvel movies that they, oh, all, interesting. That they all look the same. That's interesting. Uh, sure. Which, you know, again, I think it's for similar reasons. Yeah. Like like the studio wants a consistency to them so that they all feel like they're happening in the same mm-hmm. world. Um but yeah, it can be a little bit blandifying. Mm-hmm. And I you know, I should say like I, I like generally like the Marvel movies. I, I actually think of them as some weird hybrid between films and television though. Can I tell you a secret? Sure. I've never seen one. Okay. Not one. Well, that's fine. Should I watch one? Uh, are they good? I, Will I care? I no, I don't think you will. I I think some of them are very good. Some of them, but are if they're bad. like TV, maybe I would like them. Some more. of them are enjoyable. Uh, I just don't think they're they would be your thing. I just it's okay. it's hard for me to. We can talk about this more, and maybe maybe I'll pick out a couple that I think you might like. I I someday we'll get back to why superheroes are interesting. Yeah, like if you have I to think ask we never that, solve that. If you have to ask that question, <laughs> I'm not sure that the Marvel movies are really for you. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Um. Yeah, but cinematography know. is interesting because it's sort of. I was thinking the other day, it's sort of like what good prose is to a novel. Yeah, and so you can take like a story that, like, it could be a really stupid, petty story, or it could be a really deep story. But even a really petty story will feel will be elevated by really good prose, right? You can write a really beautiful novel about like going to the grocery store or something, mm-hmm. um, or about like a, a, a you know a silly love affair. Um, and similarly, like, but I think that's what all these, like, um, these um, film versions of, like, really popular and not very good novels are about. Like, because hmm. they can make them look so beautiful that they seem yeah. like they're good. Right, but, like, right. actually, it's still, like, a bad book if you go and read it. I it's mean, that's bad. sort of like the Merchant Ivory thing, right? Like, let's just, we, we, let's drench this with all yeah. the production values and, and that will make up for. Although, like, all those Henry James novels really sure. are very good. Shoddy writing. Yeah. <laughs> Henry James is very offended. No, 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 no. I mean shoddy writing of the of the Oh film. yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, you know, like <laughs> cuz adapting novels to film is actually really hard. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's a great point. There's something else I was going to say blah blah blah, film cinematography. Yeah. Marvel movies? Know. You like movies oh, more? Oh, lighting. Yeah, just why... just just lighting. You know, yeah. I think I think films have more interested interesting lighting and and sure. again, that's just another part of production design that I've I've gotten more interested in and 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 films have more 
more room to play with that. Yeah. And every now and then I'll see a TV show where I think where I think someone does something interesting with with lighting and cinematography, but not not that often. So two two shows that I've seen that I have seen recently that I did really enjoy. Yeah. Uh one was Troll Hunters, which I know, I have to watch that. You don't have to, but I think you I think you would like it. Um, but it's 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 a kids show, but it's totally watchable by adults. And it's you know Guillermo del Toro was one of the co creators, and you know as you may have figured out from the homework section, I'm a I'm a big uh, Guillermo del Toro fan. Um, and it's it's I think I think it's delightful, mm-hmm. um, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, another one, uh, you know, I I saw the first season. I, I the second season just came out, and I haven't watched it yet. It's called The Get Down. It's on Netflix. I've heard it's very good. It blew my mind. Yeah, I've it's, heard it's very good. Yeah, it was uh, produced by Boz Lerman, and he directed the first episode of the first season. I don't know if he did any on the second season. And it's, it, I just, I thought it was unbelievable. And I'm not a huge Boz Lerman fan. And no, nor am I. Whatever, you know, whatever he was doing, it was totally working for me. In Interesting. That, uh, and, and again, that visu- s- visually, visually, it's very interesting? Inter- super interesting yeah. visually. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing. Like, it mixes in... Uh, you know, it takes place in the seventies in the Bronx. Yeah. It's about sort yeah. of like the birth of hip hop and, um, uh, it's got some real characters like Grandmaster <laughs> Flash is a character in it with also mostly fictional characters, but mm-hmm. some of these like, you know, real, real life people. And, um, it mixes in like, um, archive footage of stuff going on in the seventies, like the, oh, like the blackout really in New York, it like mixes in archival footage with the. And of course, it's you know the music is incredible. I, I, it's 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 really wonderful. And I, I don't think it got as much season one. I don't think got as much attention as it deserved when it came out. But you know, for my money, it was miles miles better than like Stranger Things or whatever. Is that a Netflix show? Is a Netflix show? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say one more thing about cinematography. So it sounds like this, that really worked for you in some of the more Mm -hmm. experimental pieces, like putting an archival film and stuff like that. But sometimes I think like TV that tries to be too, um, like too, too serious about its aesthetics can be really, can backfire. Like I remember when I first was exposed to the West Wing, I I really hated it. And somebody asked me why, and I was like, I don't like the lighting. And it was because it Mm -hmm. just, it was like, it was taking itself so seriously. Like everything was all about how like like, high key lighting. Just, I don't know what that means. That's like, like a a lot of contrast. Like usually TV shows are done with like, like if you think of like traditional sitcom Mm. lighting, that's called low key and it's, you know, very even flat lighting Mm -hmm. and, and that, yeah, high contrast lighting is called high key. And traditionally speaking, TV has been low key and films have been high key. That's, Interesting. You know, yeah, much, I think much that less might true be part now of it. than it used to be. Yeah. I mean, well, I just dropped my microphone. Okay. Um, yeah, but then just to go back to your earlier point, I did watch it and I became very fond of the characters. And so then you're sort of like, you take it on face value that as they're walking down a hill, uh, down a hallway, there are these skylights. And so every time they go underneath a skylight, the lighting changes and you're like just listening to what they're saying and you're like, oh, San Sieber, and you're such a, you know, cat. Or that's funny he's not, I, a, he's not a cat at all he's like I, a sweet i tried to watch the west wing and I, I made it about 20 minutes in and i had to turn it off because i just wanted to slap every single person who opened their mouth <laughs> yeah you get past that okay. um you should watch sports night though if you okay. if you want to watch like josh charles show, you I, should, i'm not you should well i'm not sure i do well you you may have to assign that to me as homework at okay. some point there's not very many seasons it's it's yeah. pretty short okay. and felicity huffman is delightful i keep using the same word yeah so, okay, so this is fascinating. Now I just want to watch, like, tons of TV and not do anything else today, but I don't want to right. watch any of the shows. Here's my problem is I don't want – all the shows we mentioned, a lot of them I really like, but I don't want to rewatch them. I want to Check watch out something the get different. Down. Check Maybe out the I get will. Down. Yeah. yeah, it's awesome. Is it 30, 20, 
50, I think 80 it's, I think minutes? It's hour, How I think many it's, minutes? I think it's hour long. Okay. But um, it goes by fast. The, 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 there's kids are in it. Actors, kid actors. Oh, Will Smith's kid is in it. What's his mm. name? Jaden. Jaden? Yeah, finally in like a role where you're like, oh my God, this, this kid's amazing. Hmm. Which you would not have thought if you'd seen him in anything else. I haven't, I don't even know what he's been in. He was in a remake of The Karate Kid that took place oh. in China. What? <laughs> I've also not seen The Karate Kid too. I mean, I'm sure I saw it when I was a kid, but I, I remember nothing about it. Okay, well. Nothing. I won't make you watch it. Hey, so we've been going on for a while. Let's, let's wrap have. it up it's here, probably Sophie. Time. So listen, friends. Get out of my tell, ears. <laughs> tell, us, tell us what you think. Tell us why we're wrong. I still want our scientist friends to tell us that. And if yeah. we're wrong, hey, scienti- write in. Scientist friends, if you have opinions about our last episode, you could, you could write in and then we could discuss them on the show. That's probably the best way to get your opinions on the subject heard. Yeah, agree. And you can also assign me a hobby. I'm still taking hobby assignments. And you can tell us what shows are better if you want. You can. I'm, I'm not gonna, still not going to watch them. No. But still, uh, tell us why we're wrong. Yeah. We like that. Yeah. Uh, follow the show on Twitter uh, at TM not, TMWIW Podcast. Check out – you can follow me on Twitter, Amos Worth. Check out the website, TMWIW.net. You can find show notes there. Uh, you can also give us feedback uh, from the website. I guess that's it. That's pretty much it. Tell us why we're wrong. Rate tell us why we're wrong. Rate and review us if you want. Yeah, rate and review us on iTunes because that's awesome. And uh, tell all your friends about the show. Yeah. Uh, okay. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Bye.